This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney. Our guest is Dr. Tim O'Malley. Dr. O'Malley is the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Academic Director at Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. He holds a concurrent appointment at the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He researches and teaches in the areas of liturgical sacramental theology, marriage and family, Catholic higher education, catechesis, preaching and spirituality. He is the author of nine books, clearly an underachiever, on topics related to liturgy, RCIA, the Eucharist, sacramental theology, marriage and family and liturgical formation. You are clearly much smarter than me, and I'm glad I'm asking the questions and not having to answer them. Good morning to you, doctor. Well, good morning, Deacon Mike, and we'll see. I mean, I might have questions too. I don't have answers, so thank you for that. (laughs) All right, doctor, let's go right into this. We're in a period of Eucharistic revival. Praise the Lord for that. Many Catholics, unfortunately, don't believe that the host, Holy Communion, is truly Jesus's body and blood. So first, can you tell us, I know the answer to this one, by the way, is Jesus truly present in the Eucharist, and why should we believe that he is? Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat complicated. So yes, Christ is truly present. It is, of course, a difficult kind of presence. That's what the doctrines of the church teach. I mean, from the earliest time in the history of the church, the church fathers really had a sort of realistic sense of presence. Whether you're talking about Augustine or St. Cyril of Jerusalem or others, there was a sense that Jesus really gave himself in a personal way in the Eucharistic species, that our mortal life became divine through our encounter with the Eucharist. Of course, in the Middle Ages, things got a little bit complicated because people began to ask the question, not just, well, is Christ present, but well, how is he present? And so, yeah, he's present. He's present under the mode of sign, right? So that's what the doctrine of transubstantiation forms us to believe, that it's the full presence of Christ giving himself to us what the bread and wine are no longer exist, and they become absolutely the body and blood of Christ, his personal presence, but the accidents or signs stay behind. And that's because we don't eat human beings, even if they are our Lord. And so what we do eat is bread and wine. And so all the natural dimensions of bread and wine remain behind. They taste like bread. It gladdens the heart, as St. Thomas Aquinas noted, like wine. So yes, he's present, but it's It's not the same kind of presence, Deacon Mike, that you and I have to each other, right? Even right now via Zoom, right? It's a a specific kind of presence in the mode of sign, under the mode of sign. But it is the Lord who becomes present. And that's why we adore the host. That's why we reverence the Eucharistic species, because it is Jesus Christ who comes to us. Did you always believe in the real presence, or was there a particular time or reading from Scripture where you realized that Jesus truly is present? Uh, No, I believed it because that's what the church teaches. You know, in some ways, it's a hard thing to say, like, well, you experience it and therefore come to believe it, right? You know, I can believe and experience the power of sacred scripture. But as far as believing in real presence, as Thomas notes, where the senses fail, faith alone suffices. And so what do we end up doing? We throw ourselves into sort of the faith of the church, the faith of those who've come before us. And the more that we actually believe that, though, the more that we can see it. I tell a story sometimes. My son received his first communion during COVID, and that meant that all the sort of typical parish formation events didn't happen. So everything happened online, and that meant he never received what often people do, some sort of practice host beforehand, non-consecrated, of course, but he didn't do that until 
I realized he hadn't. And so I took some hosts unconsecrated from our building's chapel, which I hadn't, incidentally, I was unaware those had not been replaced for a year because it had not <laughs> been used during COVID. That was probably a bad idea. Uh, and so I took them home. And I remember I gave them to our my son beforehand. He's like, oh, man, this is disgusting. It tastes like cardboard. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to lead to a problem come Saturday evening when he had his first communion. And after he received the Eucharist, right, he said, well, dad, that was the sweetest thing I've ever received. And so it's not that he had some dramatic experience, but that belief allows us to see more and taste more than is there. And so for me, that's how my belief has been sustained through the years, not a single moment, but that regular reception of our Lord when I approach the altar. What do you see as the reason why most Catholics don't believe in the real presence? Is it that they were poorly catechized? Did they just give up on continuing to learn about the faith after confirmation? Is it Satan? Is it a combo of things? I think I'm probably on an interesting sort of space relative to the revival, which is, you know, we just did a survey out of our institute with Kara that, in fact, was published formally on September 27th. So it's out and available. And I actually don't think most Catholics don't believe in the real presence based upon that. I think the Pew report, but which a lot of this data comes from, is actually a really bad survey. It doesn't actually get the doctrine of the Eucharist correct itself. And it doesn't make the kind of distinctions that's really important. I suspect that most Catholics who go to Mass based upon the survey we had, probably close to 90% of Catholics who attend weekly liturgy, believe that our Lord is present. And around 80% of Catholics who go around once a month also believe this. So I think where does disbelief come about? Well, not shockingly, it turns out that people who don't go to Mass also don't believe in the Eucharistic presence of the Lord, right? They have no experience of it. They don't sort of celebrate it. And so, you know, what is the problem there? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a problem of catechesis. It's a really hard doctrine to explain. There's been a lot of contention about how important it is, right, in the church. I think there's been a lot of fighting about it. I mean, even for some theologians to talk about this doctrine for a while was considered old fashioned, and I don't think it is anymore, but I think it was. And so, you know, I think those things have happened. I think there's a lot of reasons that people don't believe in it because they don't actually care about Christ and the church in the first place, right? I mean, I think some people say if we could only teach it better, then everyone would come back. But I don't know about you, but I've been to doctors who've said, like, it's time to exercise a lot more. And of course, they're right, but that doesn't mean I came back either. And so I think that it's a much more comprehensive problem than even, you know, a Eucharistic revival can't be reduced to the doctrine of real presence, but is actually about the importance of the Eucharist for the whole life of the church. And so in that sense, I think there are Catholics who don't believe. I think there are reasons for it. But I actually think the news is a lot better than you'll read in that Pew report, which I think has gotten most of the attention. We're talking with Dr. Tim O'Malley. Dr. O'Malley, can you tell us all about your book, Becoming Eucharistic People? My first book I wrote through Ave Maria Press around the Eucharist, and that was before the revival, was Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? And what we just talked about, I talk about. Where does the doctrine come from and how does it develop? But I recognize that in the revival, it can't simply be reduced to telling people about the doctrine, nor for that matter, is it even simply like, well, we got to get everybody more devoted to the Eucharist. Parishes have to reflect on our fundamental identity as Eucharistic, right? Ave Maria gave the title Becoming Eucharistic People. In other words, how do our parishes become what we receive in the Eucharistic mystery? The Lord gives himself to us. How do we become that? How do we live out in a coherent way the Eucharistic mystery? 
So I think about a Eucharistic culture and what's a Eucharistic culture? I defined it with four dimensions. It involves reverence, right? Are our masses beautiful? It involves a long-term, lifelong and integral formation. Eucharistic catechesis does not cease when you leave childhood behind. It should continue on for the rest of your life as you think about the sacrifice of the mass and your own offering in the sacrifice. It's a formation into music and art and beauty. It's a formation of our memory, our understanding and our wills. A Eucharistic culture is also gonna do something about the privatization of Catholicism in our lives, right? Going to mass is not the only thing that Catholics do. What happens in mass has to spill out into families, into the workplace, so we need to sort of defeat that privatization. And then lastly, Eucharistic solidarity, right? To receive the Eucharist as Benedict XVI reminded us is to commit ourselves to the concrete practice of love. If we don't commit ourselves to that practice, Benedict says the Eucharist is intrinsically fragmented. So solidarity, my neighbor, his or her good is my good. Same with their suffering, what we call the common good. And so to receive the Eucharist is to be committed to the neighbor, the hungry and the thirsty and the migrant and the unborn. It's also to be committed to your literal neighbor in the pew. Do you even know their name, right? During COVID, I think the reason a lot of people left and have not come back if they have not come back is because they weren't missed. We don't know each other, right? We don't know what we're going through. We gotta remember the parish is a boundary that describes a neighborhood. It's not a building that we go to on Saturdays or Sundays. Does the Old Testament prepare the ancient people for the Eucharist? And if so, how? I think the Old Testament prepares, strictly speaking, prepares the whole sort of New Testament, right? I mean, scripture, it should be remembered, has always been written in light of scripture, right? There are references to Genesis and Exodus, and Exodus is referenced later on in Isaiah and other prophets, right? Scripture is a meditation upon what God has done. And so early Christians, when Jesus Christ died and was raised up, and when they thought about his life and ministry, they told the stories of him, including Eucharistic stories, in light of what came before, right? So give an example. In Exodus, manna is given from heaven, bread from heaven. Israel complains and is a little angry that they don't have food to eat. And God gives them bread from heaven. They can only take just a little bit of it, not all of it, just enough for one day as they learn to trust God. And if they do that, then they'll be fed from God forever, or at least for 40 years. Interestingly, right, in the Gospels, the very sort of nature of these manna miracles take place when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes, right? It's this heavenly bread. What is it? Where does it come from? In John 6, he calls himself, I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. And of course, we in the Eucharistic prayer extend that history out when we say, let your spirit descend upon these gifts like the dewfall. Dewfall is the text from Exodus. It describes how the manna, it's like the dewfall. So absolutely, the Old Testament prepares for the Eucharist. And concurrently, the New Testament helps us read the Old Testament in light of what comes, and even to read sort of the life of the church anew. And I think that's the great gift of learning to read the Bible. And there's a lot of great scholars, both Catholic and Protestant, who've really come to understand how connected even the whole New Testament is to the Old Testament from the very beginning and how the stories are told. Can you talk about reverence of the Eucharist versus irreverence? Irreverence is a risk for all of us. And irreverence for most of us is not going to be the kinds of desecration 
that shock and awe. It's the kind of irreverence of mundane forgetfulness. We lose what St. John Paul II calls Eucharistic amazement, right? We cease doing that. It's akin to a spouse, a husband or a wife who no longer actually has gratitude for his or her marriage. We get used to things. And so to me, the real talking about desecration and reverence doesn't start in sort of the salacious cases. It actually starts with me. Am I reverent? Do I receive a right? Am I a reverent recipient of our Lord? And I got to admit, I'm not always. And that's why I go to confession. And so that's such irreverence, I think, starts with me. Certainly there are egregious cases. You read things about someone taking the Eucharist and celebrating some weird sort of satanic rituals around the host or things like that. But I'm worried about my irreverence from when I receive and then... I yell at my neighbor and then I go back to the mass and I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to receive again, right? I'm going to schlep up there and receive unaware of the gift that I'm given. So I guess that's how I like to think about the concern because I think it brings down to me something less irregular and actually a lot more regular. What can you recommend to someone who wants to understand the real presence? How can they learn more? I think understanding the gift of real presence starts with Eucharistic devotion. It's more regular participation in the rites of the church, really attuning yourself to reception of the host through full conscious and active participation in the full mass. But I think it goes on from there too, right? It's, there's things to read. And, you know, I mentioned my book, Real Presence. It will introduce you to people you should read. You should read Augustine and John Chrysostom and you should read Thomas Aquinas and you should read Dorothy Day and Simon Weil and these great sort of Eucharistic mystics of all sorts. There are some really intensive, excellent books on the development of the doctrine. I recommend, if you're really interested, Jan Heiner Tuchs. I mean, this is for people who are nerds. So <laughs> if you're a nerd, good news. Jan Heiner Tuchs book on the topic, and the name escapes me, but it's from CUA Press, and it's on the Eucharist. Uh, the Gift of Presence is the name, and it's on St. Thomas Aquinas's development of this. So if you really love Thomas and you like theology, I cannot recommend that book enough. But also, lastly, just share your faith with people. You learn through sharing your own faith and dialoguing and asking questions. And I think the more that we share our faith in the Eucharistic presence of our Lord, the more we'll learn. Okay, Dr. O'Malley, can you tell us what other books do you have and where can we get them? Yeah, there's a number of books. I mean, you can find them. As I said, there was a, at the beginning, there's a number. But the easiest way to find what I've written is that behemoth Amazon. Just look and see me and you'll see where the books are. So Okay. Dr. O'Malley, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Deacon Mike. Our guest today was Dr. Tim O'Malley, and this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash howwesee it.